1: Welcome back to another episode of Positively Trek. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me as always is my co-host, Dan Gunther. How's it going, Dan?
2: Not too bad. I feel like my house might have hit a quantum filament earlier, but I think everything's under control.
1: (laughs) I think the good part is, is um, the crew you have is trustworthy and knowledgeable and resilient.
2: Yes, musts when it comes to dealing with the ever-present threat of quantum filaments. (laughs) <laughs> yes, definitely. Who
1: knows when you're going to hit one. Actually, since we watched uh the the uh eponymously named um episode of Star Trek that we have named this episode after, we're talking about disasters today. I've actually kind of gone down a bit of a disaster rabbit hole. Um can you guess any any sort of h- disasters in human history that I may have uh I may have looked at or what what pops to mind when you think of disaster?
2: Oh man. Um I mean The one that immediately popped in my head, I don't know that it'll be forefront on everyone's mind, but I was actually recently reading about the Halifax explosion and that one kind of uh, popped into my head just because it's something that I've seen online. People who don't live in Canada tend to be like, wait, what? What was the biggest man-made explosion in history up until a certain point? That was it? Really? Intense. Utter bananas.
1: <laughs> yeah. Utter bananas. You're right. Actually, well, speaking of explosions, um, I've been actually uh, researching Pompeii and Herculaneum Ooh. in the year 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted. And uh, for, for for context, in 1944, uh, Vesuvius erupted, um, and it caused a great deal of damage in Pompeii, took a, put, took a number of lives. But the Vesuvius eruption in 79 AD was 50 times that of the eruption in 1944. And so um, what happened was is uh, Pompeii was destroyed quite quickly in pumice and and everything raining from the sky. And then um, um, the the dark uh, pumice killed a lot of people, suffocating them in their place and leaving them in those amazingly kind of macabre style positions and and poses and stuff like that whereas uh, herculaneum uh later that day so 1 1 p.m is when it uh, went uh, when vesuvius went and then by midnight uh at herculaneum a larger explosion took place and a pyroclastic flow uh killed a number of people but it also preserved the entire city um under about i think it was four stories of uh, volcanic ash and debris and everything else wow Yeah. And so what you end up seeing is basically what people did to try and get out. They were actually uh, not very many individuals were found in the town site. It was actually they were found in the boathouses under a gigantic stone built arcade that anything else you would have survived. The only thing that you wouldn't survive through by being down there was a pyroclastic flow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see how even in those days, people had procedures, they had ways of doing things, um, measures that they were trying to take to save as many people as possible. And it's arguable that a number of people were saved, thankfully, as boats in the Bay of Naples would have seen what was happening and people would have come to their aid. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. There's a there's a, just a sudden and intense history lesson for everybody. I uh, <laughs> love it. <laughs> so before we dive into the actual episode, I think it's time we get into some amazing news. And thank you, Dan, for uh, getting the news. News earlier uh, this week, I was stuck uh, doing a number of paperwork, uh, make work objects that I uh, jobs that I had to get done. But uh, thankfully, I'm on the other side of that, and I am seriously considering getting a copy of Star Trek Resurgence. I know that's not on the news for today, but uh...
2: well, I'm I'm actually glad you brought that up. I have played it a little bit, and mm-hmm. it's fun. I'm really digging this game. It's uh, it's definitely more than I was expecting and it it's clearly made by people who love and know star trek there's thousands of little deep cut references and things like that like the the one of the main characters you play is half Kobliad, which is an alien race that you meet in season one of deep space nine uh as kind of a one-off thing and uh yeah, it's pretty cool. I I don't know. I really love it. I I, I looked at
1: the uh, the system requirements uh, based on the little tiny brick computer that I work off of here, and it's uh, like Indiana Jones getting through that 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 lowering stone doorway and getting his hat. Um, that's basically. My computer just meeting those system requirements. So it might be a bit of a laggy, choppy mess if I play, but you know what? I think it's worth it. I'm, I'm going to give it a whirl.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. I think you'll have a lot of fun. It really, it gives you the feeling of living and working on a starship in a way that I feel like Star Trek Online kind of misses. I I feel like it doesn't quite get there. Uh, And also I've played a good hour of the game and I haven't done any starship combat, which I'm kind of happy about because the focus on that with Star Trek Online gets a bit much I think.
0: I
1: agree and and I like the idea of of getting a little bit of day to day in and again that's something we're going to be bringing up in the episode because that's what disaster does for you is it it gives you a quick little snapshot before everything goes bonkers kind of like uh kind of like Pompeii and Herculaneum little a little snapshot. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully things work out for the Enterprise crew a lot better than the citizens of either city. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so in in um in other news, uh, we have the uh, the WGA strike has delayed uh, season three production of Star Trek: uh, Strange New Worlds, and as it says in the article, it looks like we're going to be seeing a Screen Actors Guild strike happening probably by about the thirtieth. Of June or so. I honestly, I just, I just think that a lot of the the issues that have come about through the streaming services, through the fundamental shift in how we consume media, and media culture, and how franchises work, and that sort of concentration of kind of wealth, power, and storytelling ability is, um, it's reaching its breaking points, and I think we're starting to see the
2: cracks show in a lot of ways. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, this mentioning this in the news is kind. Kind of mostly just a confirmation of what we already knew, but we have kind of official people telling us that, yeah, season three is not shooting. It will be delayed until after the strike is done, whenever that may be. Season two, of course, of Strange New World's done, ready to go, excited for people to see it kind of thing. But yeah, as you mentioned, the Screen Actors Guild may also be going on strike if they aren't able to work out a new contract Before the end of June Uh, and also on top of that, the director's guild also is in the midst of uh, working on a deal with the studios and that contract also ends on June 30th. So this could be a perfect storm of labor action (laughs) through the summer. I mean, it's very possible that it. Looks like the sides are very far apart, so this could be a a very long strike indeed.
1: It'll be interesting because much like when one throws a rock into a pond, it takes a minute for the ripples to come back. We don't know and won't be able to fully understand the breadth of what's happening right now in the entertainment industry, I would say until probably the end of the summer, maybe Mm -hmm. further. As we start having a lot of, uh, Hey, remember the nineties kind of style to the streaming services where they're going to try to plumb in as much content as possible while no new content is going to be showing up. I can, I can almost, I can almost feel it (laughs) coming and that that's going to have an effect. I think that, that maybe we're not fully uh, prepared for as a, uh, as sort of a society in general that have kind of gotten used to certain things and, Mm. and certain ways and everything. So I do think that this is going to have something of a delayed reaction um, if it doesn't get resolved soon. And I think the only way this gets resolved is if there is a, an assurance that everybody involved in production of of the shows and, and, and things that we
2: like get a fair shake for the job they do. 100%. As consumers, I, I hope Star Trek fans especially are among those who – understand the complexities of this issue, or at least if they don't understand them can respect the complexities that surround this issue and are willing to sacrifice their entertainment for a while to ensure that those writers and ultimately those actors and directors possibly eventually uh, get a fair shake and get a fair deal. So I feel that's a really important issue. And I hope like I say, my fellow Star Trek fans are behind that as well. Definitely. Well, solidarity as always. Hear, Here. So all ten
1: um, TOS and TNG Star Trek movies will be returning to Paramount Plus. Of course, that doesn't really affect uh, the two of us. <laughs> I was just actually scrolling through our version uh, called Crave, and it's got everything there. Yeah, as far as I recall. And I was actually considering watching a movie last night. I'm I'm a little under the weather and, and I'm a little lethargic. Uh, I ended up watching Nope instead, which was entertaining, but
2: uh, gory. So watch for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is a, a kind of a, just a continued musical chairs when it comes to these Star Trek films in the U S uh, they were on Paramount, Paramount plus or CBS all access, whatever it was at the time for a while. And then they all left and then they popped up on HBO max. Yeah. And then now in June, they'll be back on Paramount plus again, and presumably off of HBO max. And this article that I'll have linked in the show notes doesn't even promise that that will be a situation that continues. It could change up again at some point. But uh, that does mean that on June 1st, for like the first time I think ever, all of Star Trek will be on Paramount Plus, which is weird because you'd think that would just be the case automatically. But Yeah. yeah, so all 10 of these movies, all three of the Kelvin timeline movies, and then all of Of course, all of Star Trek on television Uh, will finally all be on Paramount (laughs) Plus. Well, that's nice to hear,
1: at least. Um, and then also broadcast networks are, are popping up here, too. Comet, a American broadcast sci-fi channel, um, also in the United States, not up here in Canada, uh, is going to be doing a marathon of Star Trek. Um, and I think they're going to be doing the first four movies uh, in that marathon. So it, it really gives me some old school Spike TV vibes mm, from back mm-hmm. in the day when they used to do... <laughs> um, those commercials about those two kind of bro dudes talking about how much they love Star
2: Trek. Oh, Spike TV, man. That brings back memories. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, wow. that's, I guess, yeah, I mean, this this really
1: underscores to me a necessity to make sure that you have the, the Star Trek you love in some kind of personal format. Mm-hmm. Um, and un- unfortunately, formats shift and change as well. Um, I think we can probably be satisfied that like DVD, Blu-ray sort of things are going to be um, viable for at least the next half century, I would say. Um, and then, of course, there's always drives and data keys that you can purchase and, and rip um, this this hardware and stuff like that, legally, yeah. of course. Of um, course, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I do think that, that this kind of musical chairs about these sorts of things is frustrating. Like, I was scrolling through streaming services yesterday looking for something to watch, and On Crave, actually, I noticed that they had little tiny things that said that like, oh, this is going to be taken away soon. This is going to disappear soon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem with renting your media (laughs) In, in this case
2: is you are always going to be at the mercy and the whim of the person you're renting it from. And I mean, the promise was kind of made that like, you know, everything would be available, like all these old shows and all these old movies and stuff, you should be able to get them somehow through a streaming service. But uh, just as an example, I saw a clip from Taxi on YouTube and I was like, man, I would really love to go back and rewatch Taxi, you know, uh, that old show, Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd and... Uh, Andy Kaufman and all of them, mm-hmm. it is nowhere to be found. I have no idea if anywhere streams it and if they do, if I can get that service, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know not absolutely everything in the world will always be available, but I don't know. It seems every time I get an idea in my head that like, oh, there's that movie I want to see. And sure enough, nothing carries it.
1: <laughs> no, And and that's, and that's a problem that, that is going to continue to persist so long as we base the streaming services off of um, profit motive maximization. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with getting some profit on things. Definitely, you, you wouldn't get an argument there from me, but I think it's this idea that rate of profit always drops. That's an economic certainty that, that even Adam Smith himself talks about in The Wealth of Nations. Um, and it's, it's baffling to me that these streaming services didn't understand that, that they could provide all of these things and then realize that over time people are going to like or want it less and less um, as it goes. But those things are sustainable in a lot of different ways. And I think the streaming service, you know, as it replaced the video store culture that we once had, ultimately what it wound up doing in a profound way was give us the option to binge, the option to seek out and find things. And I think, you know, Dan, you saying like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the idea that things don't have to all be available. I actually would say, why? Couldn't we? Couldn't (laughs) someone be able to, you know, upload even like VHS copies of Taxi onto the Internet and then you could watch it? Like, Mm -hmm. are we that obsessed with with the profit motive that we can't be able to do stuff like that? And I don't want to get too preachy here, so I'm going to stop. But long and short of it, let's hope these uh, movies stay. Let's hope that we manage to allow people to access these movies you know, when they want to and they can stay on there for at least five years. Give it five years,
2: Paramount. Just leave it on there for that long. <laughs> here, here. One hundred percent. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to watch Taxi actually, of course, was Carol Kane, uh, who's yeah. going to be in the upcoming season of Strange New Worlds. So Good point. You know, Star Trek fans wanna go see some of her iconic roles, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Also, um, it's a missed opportunity that Danny DeVito hasn't never been on Star Trek.
2: Yes. Agreed, one hundred percent. I think he could play a pretty wicked Ferengi. He'd be a cool Ferengi. I wouldn't even mind seeing him as just like a Starfleet admiral or a Starfleet captain. I think actually yes, he'd be switch him over. Yeah, make him like a like a hard nosed Starfleet admiral who like doesn't take crap from no one. Ooh, I could see that totally. too. Oh, I love it. Shades of Louis De Palma, but maybe just a little less misogyny and crassness, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, in in, in a final bit of news, uh, the ever-expanding
1: world of Star Trek board games is getting a new addition, Black Alert, the Star Trek Discovery board game, where you are stuck in the mirror universe and you need to use the Discovery's specific uh, technologies, like the spore drive and everything, to uh, find your way back home. I've always loved a good Star Trek board game from... um, that really, really impossibly difficult one from the seventies to <laughs> Star Trek panic to their version of attack
2: wing. Um, I've never played Star Trek Catan though. Um, mm. that's one I haven't done. I have played that. It's not bad. It's pretty much Catan with a Star Trek skin on it, but there is a little bit of added gameplay. That's pretty cool. Nice. But yeah, a Star Trek discovery board game, but not only that based on discovery's first season. Interesting. I
1: <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes, you know, like how these things come to fruition and, and what the timeline was for the mm-hmm. creation of this, if if this got delayed over a long period of time,
2: because, yeah, this is uh, a couple years late, uh, <laughs> if, if that's the case. A little bit, yeah, but, uh, you know... One thing, reading the description of this game, like like you said, you're playing the crew of the Discovery or the Mirror Universe's ISS Charon and, and you're at, you know, you can, it can be single player or team play kind of thing. It's kind of made me want to go back and rewatch season one of Discovery. So there's that, I guess. That's kind of cool. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to match
1: the frenetic pace that season one had because mm. once one like one actually really reminds me a lot of of the pacing of like two thousand and nine Star Trek. A lot happens very, very quickly. There's not a lot of time to react until you're on to the next thing. Um, and I think that would make for a pretty riveting board game, to be honest.
2: It does bill itself as a tense team based strategy game. So tense might be doing a lot of heavy lifting in that phrase there if it is anything like season one of discovery, yeah, no, definitely. tense uh, and 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 who who? Who doesn't like having tense moments around the table with friends? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Well, the game is uh, by WizKids. Uh, So if you know any of their other games, the Heroclix games or the Attack Wing uh, games where you have the little miniatures and stuff, that's that same company. So uh, the gameplay on those, I I really enjoy. So I bet you that this is probably a well-tested, pretty good game uh, when it comes down to it. So uh, I, I don't know that I'll pick this one up. We have a ton of board games that we've picked up over the years and and not played enough to justify the purchase, unfortunately. But I don't know. I'd like to try this one out somehow. Well, I I would imagine that
1: uh, any any settlement uh, large enough to host a card game coffee shop would be our best bet Mm -hmm. i would say there's there's typically coffee shops that have board games and card games and stuff in most larger cities and towns and stuff like that so you could
2: probably we could probably lobby lobby our local one to uh to pick it up i'm on a first name basis with the owner so i will ask her if she'll pick this up (laughs) sweet perfect the galaxy depends on it (laughs) Well, after this short break,
1: we are going to get into our main discussion, which is Star Trek The Next Generation's uh, episode, Disaster. So stay tuned.
2: Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Positively Trek. We truly do appreciate each and every one of our listeners. And I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of Positively Trek and join our crew, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout-outs, associate producer credits, ad-free episodes, episodes, and more. Again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all and live long and prosper.
1: And we're back with our main discussion for today, which is season five, episode five, disaster of the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Quick synopsis, quantum filament hits hits the Enterprise-D rendering basically all systems down catastrophic damage to um, major functions within life support and everything else of the enterprise members of the crew are separated in very interesting and unique pairings that that have resonance into other series into the future which is always entertaining and fun and you get to see glimpses of how each of the characters act when they are in many cases vastly outside of their comfort zone i don't think anybody is completely in their comfort zone in uh, any in any of the situations that we're uh, we're put into, where we have Worf delivering a baby. We've got Picard taking care of kids, you know, a la Alan Grant from uh, Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. You've got Data and Riker entertainingly going through Jeffrey's tubes and everything else. And finally, you've got Crusher and LaForge hanging out uh, in the... In a, in a very, very precarious situation where they could get sucked out into space. And, uh, Deanna Troy runs the ship for a while and succeeds. Mm-hmm. So there's a long winded sort of explanation of the show itself. Dan, do you remember the first time or, or earlier times that you've watched this
2: and what has sort of been your resonating impression of, uh, of disaster? I do. And, uh, so as I've mentioned on the podcast before, season five was the first, season of the next generation that I watched live as it aired and ergo the first episodes of the next generation I watched ever. So this one comes very early in season five. And I distinctly remember this as being one of my formative thoughts of the next generation. And I really enjoyed this episode. It was, at the time, tense. Really lets you get to know a lot of these characters. I I honestly think Season 5 is a great season to start watching TNG in. It's so good. Just the, the idea of Star Trek... Being something where people, professionals work together to better their lives and to advance uh, the the mission and stuff, right? Like Star Trek to me has always been a couple of things. And on the macro level, it's those high-minded ideals. We better humanity where it's a bright future where, uh, you know, things like race and gender and all of that don't determine how you're treated, right? But on the micro level, it's always been a group of professionals working together harmoniously in a work environment, more or less. And uh, every job I've ever had, I've always compared to the bridge crew of TNG. And it's always come away wanting because they are the epitome of professionalism. And this episode just showcases that perfectly. I think even when they're not all together, they're still working together as a unit to save lives and to uh, save the day. That was
1: extremely, extremely well put. And, and just to kind of place that in, in a little, a little jar, um, and on how I would, I would respond to that is everybody is performing admirably at Mm -hmm. every point. And that's something that I do. I, I mean, I do. I admire it. I admire the that kind of resolve and, and hope that I can rise to such an occasion if it happens. Um, as as the same, it's, this has always been a favorite episode of mine uh, of mine. And and I do find um, just on like a a standard like '90s TV level, I do find that a lot of the effects in this uh, in this episode stand up. Uh, the green screen of the turbo lift shaft when the turbo lift falls. Uh, I've always bought it. You know, mm-hmm. the, the key is to look at the kid, not at the elevator, but it's, um, it's a really well put together, uh, story. It, despite its very, uh, precarious and peculiar situations that it presents, honestly, um, my suspension of disbelief is held pretty much throughout. I mean... To watch Star Trek, your suspension of disbelief has to be pretty elastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in this respect, everything is explained really well. And, and you know, you had mentioned, Dan, um, having a bit of consternation, especially to how Deanna Troy is characterized in this. She she definitely um, seems to not know what she's doing in a lot of senses. But to go back and, and look at this and, and watch the episode, I thought to myself— you know, hey, I, this is this is an episode that I could probably show my family because Deanna Troy asks all of the questions they are going to ask. So, mm-hmm. I do find that that Marina Sirtis um, took one for the team. I think in a lot of cases for this episode, though it does put her in a bit of an unflattering light in places.
2: Yeah, and I mean. A lot of that, of course, for dramatic reasons, you, you can, you can see them breaking this in the writer's room, right? Like, Oh, let's put this character in this situation. It'll be weird. Let's put Deanna Troy in command. She's the counselor. She wouldn't have any knowledge of mundane, the Picayune operations of the ship. Right. Uh, I think it goes a little bit far when, you know, I, it's either Roe or O'Brien says that will result in a core breach or an antimatter containment breach, and she says, yeah. well, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. at some level you have to know something like that. Um, that again is a criticism of the writing of that scene. That's not a criticism of that character. I think, uh, Exactly. I think that character is is very strong. And one thing that I love is that this event is even referenced in a later episode in season seven, where she decides to take the bridge officer's test and she directly references having to be in command during this incident and not feeling comfortable with her level of knowledge and wanting to change that and wanting to uh, grow from that. So I, I love this is an era where there wasn't a lot of continuity threads like that. And I love when they're able to do things like that.
1: Yeah. And, and you even brought to me, uh, brought to my attention when in Deep Space Nine, Worf and O'Brien are on the (laughs) promenade uh, near Quark's bar and, and Keiko is brought up and Worf sort of has this like, panic attack and O'Brien sort of has a knowing look of like oh yes he's remembering that and and, and most deep space niners will have remembered disaster as again a perennial favorite of uh of the series Mm -hmm. so what I want to maybe kind of lean into to start with is is breaking down the episode kind of into its constituent parts there's sort of the before the during and then the after um kind of to to make it as simple simplified as possible but um I I want to kind of focus a little bit on what the characters are doing before uh, the disaster takes place, just to kind of give Mm -hmm. us a sort of uh, Data's Day in miniature, right? Obviously, I think Data's Day is one of the favorite, like, for me, kind of like slice of life episodes that Star Trek has ever done. But uh, in this case, you kind of get started with a slice of life. And then, of course, someone drops the slice on the floor and then we have to deal with it. So for for you Dan what uh, what would you say is one of the most kind of memorable uh, before the filament hit kind of uh, interactions or in, interchanges that's taking place.
2: So I really appreciate uh the the little bit we get in 10 forward beforehand with with Keiko being pregnant uh with the child we will come to know as Molly uh where they're talking about, you know, what they're going to name him or her at the at this point, you know, bandying about names and get a little bit of that kind of Uh, sniping between Keiko and Miles, but playfully done. You know, I think people focus too much on that and and don't, Recognize that kind of playful banter for what it is, and say that they're always she's always nagging him or whatever. But I I, I love that little interaction between them where they're you know we agreed on this name, Well, we didn't discount this name, and oh Miles and rolls her eyes and uh, Data you know asking permission to to touch Keiko's midsection and feel the baby kick and the look of astonishment on data's face that brent spiner can do so well i i love that whole situation that's so much fun
1: you're right i i very much agree and also um none of that like oh thank god i don't have to go through that kind of banter even from Riker, he's mm. uh um i, I he, breaking my own rules and just sort of how he interacts with keiko from that point to the disaster and everything he he very much just sort of sees that as, as sort of like a natural process. He's very kind to her. He's very nurturing. Um, I appreciate that. That's a really good scene. Um, mm. I like that one. For me, I found it amusing, I think, more than anything. And this is, again, kind of uh, a thing with Gates McFadden is that sort of <laughs> never really fully appreciating the fact that I think if, if – Asked Gates McFadden would have broken into a vaudeville-style dance at any given moment from seasons one to seven of TNG. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that to some degree, that's a bit of a missed opportunity um, <laughs> for, for the amount of times that it could have happened. So getting to see uh, LeVar Burton and Gates McFadden go over HMS Pinafore, the modern major general, yeah. um, while they're hiding, basically doing sort of some menial task in a, in a little warehouse is, for me, really charming. Because again, these are characters who would otherwise Never be interacting with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, engineers and doctors, um, you know, healers, both in their in their own right, typically don't uh, don't do too much together. And so, getting getting to see them um, and and just sort of seeing their relationship in that moment, um, it, it actually kind of reminded me of some of the old coworkers I had uh, when I worked at uh, Fort Edmonton Park way back in the day. Just, oh, uh, nice. You know, just kind of anyone you could uh, you could interact with like
2: that, um, and it just sort of shows the type of crew they are. Uh, That would, that would have been mine. You mentioning Crusher and Gates McFadden, you know, vaudeville acts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that photo of Gates fully dressed in her Dr. Crusher costume, riding a unicycle on the Paramount lot It's one of my favorite photographs. And I'm like, why did they never have her do that on the holodeck or something? Yeah, yeah, no, she,
1: she has, um, she has quite the talent, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, despite the fact that, that, you know, you and I wax lyrical about Brent Spiner being a physical actor, um, I think, I think she is too, and, and maybe didn't get that opportunity quite as often.
2: Yeah, a little side note, and I think I've even brought this up on the podcast before, the episode Cupid, where they're doing the Robin Hood pastiche and, Mm -hmm. um, Jonathan, well, okay, Riker, Data, and and Jordy all come in with swords to storm the castle, and they cut to Troy and Crusher smashing pots over people's heads. Mm -hmm. There were only two members of that cast that had actually had fencing training, and they were Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden. And that just drives me insane. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Oi, that's
1: frustrating. Anyway. Doesn't
2: Data take an arrow to the chest in that one? Too? <laughs> yes, yes, he does. And the way he
1: moves his hand, I just love that.
2: Where he's like, <laughs> "Fortunately, my major functions are unimpeded," or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do not despair, Counselor. Your aim is improving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So, so the other piece of this, I think, more than anything,
1: is is we are seeing sort of a slice of. Of life in in the twenty fourth century in in certain aspects. However, in other aspects, you know, we are also seeing what one would see on a long haul exploration starship. You need to stay busy, and so you don't go crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, this is you know one of the biggest ships depicted in Star Trek. Uh, in its history and everything like that massive crew it's got a dolphin pool um, several holodecks and stuff like that but you think about it you need to stay active like that you need to have these sort of side side hustles of of entertainment and hobbies or else uh I could see, you know, that, that being quite a, a boring sort of thing. But what do they typically get up to? It's very sort of community-oriented stuff, right? Picard Day or, or you know, the, the science fair um, that they that they have among the kids and getting to see Captain Picard on that, all that sort of stuff. You know, in, in, in other episodes, you see people always doing something interesting, like Riker's in a jazz band, right? I would have loved to see an episode where he just, like, hangs out with his jazz band buddies. Yeah, like, let's know? see the
2: rehearsal. <laughs> we yeah. never see the, the shows in Ten Forward. Yeah, Let's see yeah. like him never hitting that, that, that A-sharp quite right or something and yeah, the exactly. rest of his bandmates chastising him for it. <laughs>
1: right? I I would love to see those those kinds of
2: and it gets you into this concept
1: of like slice of life episodes um, as they're depicted and stuff like that but the long and short of it, you know, it's a very wholesome, it's a very, um, it's an uplifting sort of moment because uh, sure, it's a TV show and it's all pretend anyway but uh, it's really nice to see everybody getting along and really mm-hmm. everybody just sort of having a good time and, and accepting each other and all that stuff. So then disaster strikes. Um, everything goes sideways, a lot of really good camera shaking. Everyone falls in the right direction. And here we have it. No mm-hmm. rocks. If I can remember correctly.
2: None that um, I noticed. Yeah. yeah no, no, no plaster rocks. and rock <laughs> consoles blowing out or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, lots of, uh, barrels shaking on, in the cargo bay, which I, I remarked that was a pretty good effect. It must've been done with wires where the room shakes via the camera, of course, and, and Crusher and the Forge lurch sideways. But then like five or six barrels kind of go wobble and then tumble over. Uh, yeah. It was nicely done. It's something that I probably didn't appreciate watching this as a kid, but as an adult looking at that going like, oh, how'd they do that? That's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah.
1: Something, if something's done right, you know that's always the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have our pairings, right? We've uh, just kind of like make things a little bit more simply. Um, you know, kind of Worf and Keiko, Troy O'Brien and Roe, Riker and Data, Crusher and LaForge, and then Picard and the kids. That's sort of a fair enough breakdown. Um, for you in this in this sense, Dan.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that makes sense.
1: So I'm gonna just sort of pick at random and um, start with Worf and Keiko, in the sense that. Keiko is typically the boss, right? When it comes to her and O'Brien, she's very strong. Um, she'll tell him what's what, uh, and she'll chastise him in public if necessary. And when Worf gets to sort of parlay with her while she's giving birth, I think the number one thing that I noticed from him is a reluctance, right? I remember when we were watching this together, Dan, you, you said, and here comes Worf, and he's looking around going, like, where's
2: the blue shirt? Where's
1: the blue shirt? You
2: know, <laughs> uh, how do I you get out? give birth now. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking around frantically for someone else, anyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But once he sort of accepts
1: the role, and obviously there's a lot of uh, entertaining banter around his his training, and then and then what he actually encounters in real life, and um, the way he sort of kind of. I don't know, the whole time he's sort of groaning about the inconvenience that this is a lot harder than what he had trained for,
2: which I found <laughs> this amusing. This is not like the simulations, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: so it, there is a certain amount that, that you really are seeing that, that, like, this is a challenge greater than Worf, you know, I think he would rather take on, you know, six or seven Hadar than than deliver another baby, right? Mm-hmm. So in this respect, I appreciate the fact that by the end of it, he talks to her, I find, much like he would talk to a fellow Klingon warrior, um, he he! You can hear the reverence in his voice for her strength, and for the fact that she's uh, she's doing this, and and so I do find that that's quite interesting. That in this pairing. Keiko's strength really sort of shows out in all of this and Worf's ability to adapt the amount of positive language, even though you can tell he's training, he's like, you are doing a good job, right? That, that <laughs> kind of thing. Sure, this is all what he's been trained to do, but he's doing it and he's doing it right. And that kind of positive language that, that, that sort of helpful, encouraging, cajoling, but also like not pantomime or or pedantic tone, right? He means what he says, uh, even though some of it's sort of scripted from what he's learned, so that's what I really liked about of watching that is, is Worf engaged in battle there in some, in some way. And I think mm-hmm. that's what he liked about it. And Keiko really shows what she's made of too, right? Like minutes before she began giving birth, she was walking around helping people uh, as much as she could. And, and, um... Yeah. I really appreciate that. This is a very good sort of like, if anyone finds Keiko to be annoying or, or overbearing and stuff like that, you really have to understand that that's the formula that she and O'Brien have struck. So they're
2: probably into it.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. you know? yeah.
2: yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Worf in this is so much fun to watch. And every time I watch this, I feel like I, I see more from what's going on than I did before. And this last time I felt like I might've seen a little bit of pride in Worf in that, like, I took this, this academy training course and now I get to put this into practice. And he's like, you know, have you ever delivered a baby before? Yes. No. <laughs> well, I did the, you know, <laughs> yeah. I did the training course at the academy, and but and it's like, oh, she's like, okay. You know, and I, I. I almost would have liked to have seen like we get, like you mentioned the continuity in the Deep Space Nine episode where Keiko's pregnant again and it's like, Keiko's having a baby now. Yeah. <laughs> he's like all freaked out. Like I will be far away when that happens. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have loved to have seen like maybe in, in f- the episodes following this, you know, something like Dr. Crusher uh, bringing Molly in for a checkup and, you know, kind of gently asking Worf, hey, Worf, do you want to come along and, and, you know, see how she's doing? And half jokingly, half like, you know, I wouldn't there be like a little bit of a relationship between Keiko and Worf and Molly after this? I, I think that would have been kind of cool to see just as, as a little, if this show was made in the Deep Space Nine era or even more so in like the Discovery Picard era, I feel like we would have seen that carry forward a little bit
1: maybe but I, I I would I would say that given Worf's track record with uh, uh, family um, <laughs> maybe not I think he's actually yeah, right true. on the mark in terms of completely ignoring people he's had meaningful experiences with <laughs> or <laughs> that's fair you know that's fair. <laughs> people who he, 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 he you know offspringed and all that jazz so I, I like that uh, whole pieces you know that that kind of really reminds me of like You know, disaster on the cruise ship kind of feel right where you have a lot of unqualified civilians sort of all rattled and banged up and everything like that. And then a small amount of of professionals who are trained for these sorts of things. And I mean, I would assume that any civilian on the enterprise is going to have a certain level of training for what to Mm -hmm. do in a disaster. Um, And if, if memory serves, you know, there are people, you know, in plain clothes um, also wandering around helping and, and, and stuff like that in 10 forward. But um, that one again shows just how quickly they are at creating like triage areas. You'll see that people are lined up in specific ways, all of that stuff, very reminiscent of what you would see um, at sea um, or in a sort of standard disaster scenario. Of course, at this point in time, um, you know, we're we're into season five. So, you know, movies like Apollo 13, um, um, one that you've you've told me you have a, a lot of high regard for, like what to do mm-hmm. in disasters. Um, this would have been after the explosion of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines uh, and and just sort of how people are taken care of in these in these moments. And so I think this is something that would be relatively recognizable uh, for most people, but being shot in space, it's interesting to see, yeah, again, Worf way out of his, uh, his comfort zone, but still rising to the occasion. Mm -hmm. Speaking of rising to the occasion, I want to talk about Troy, O'Brien, and Roe. You see that power struggle that Roe always brings in all of her relationships. She's always very standoffish, has a very thick, a thick facade, never wants to let anybody in. And then you've got O'Brien, who just sort of, he's typically good at going with the flow, but he doesn't take crap. And that's, that's one thing that I've always appreciated about O'Brien. He's, he's set in his ways, he knows what he's doing, but when you look at the breakdown, once it is determined that Troy is the ranking officer, though I think it crosses both Roe and O'Brien's mind, they don't take command. And I think mm-hmm. that's extremely important given the way things, how things shake out.
2: Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a good observation. And, you know, what you say about Roe is, is very true. Like she's combative, uh, but at the same time, professional, right? Like she doesn't take control at any point, like you say. She doesn't. She doesn't attempt to mutiny or anything. She accepts that Troy is the one in command and she will make clear when she thinks that Troy is making an incorrect decision from her point of view. But once Troy says, no, this is my decision and we will do this until I decide otherwise. She may not say I, sir, like she's supposed to, as we noted a couple times, mm-hmm. but she'll say, all right, and go do, go do her job basically. Right. So. Now she, she is still capable of kind of unilateral decision making. Of
1: course it is written in to be successful and actually the right choice in that respect. When she starts rerouting ship systems to keep the, um, the core from, um, overloading, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is important and it is good in the sense that I think upon reflection, both O'Brien and Troy um, accept the fact that she made that very quick unilateral decision. Um, And I think that's where people in this episode especially give way to expertise over command in certain cases and we'll see that again especially with Picard and the kids and and the ability to rise again to these sorts of occasions and improvise a little bit you know I've Mm -hmm. I used to be in a a rock band way back in the day and uh the drummer uh my friend uh Zach he he was always really good you know if we were getting the AV equipment started in some kind of like problem happened, he would usually troubleshoot it long before he knew anything was wrong and then when we're taking down, I'm like, why are all these cords taped together and like, why is this taped onto here and why is that hanging over there? And he's like, oh, I just had to like it didn't work, so now I just tried to fix it as fast as he could before the show started. So I think that that is important. They they didn't necessarily they weren't necessarily happy
2: with Rose' choice, but in the end they trusted her and I think that's important and that's why she mm. trusts them. So I have this book that I bought a long time ago. It's called Captain's Logs The Unauthorized Complete Trek voyages, and it's like interviews with people about each uh, episode, and it's not a not officially licensed, but they interviewed a lot of people to do with the episodes, and I like this. Uh, Michael Pillar talked a little about, bit about Rose's role in this episode, and I found this really interesting. Um, he says we gave her the role of the disbelieverhood nowhere to go, but lose in the end because she didn't believe Troy. I think as I wrote in a memo, it would have been much better if she'd been around a year with some victories before he threw her right into that situation to look rather foolish. She apologizes to Troy at the end. She says, gee, you were right counselor. And I was wrong and I respect you to me after Troy made the right decision in a crisis, Rose's character. And I'm not sure if anybody would agree with me on this would have said, you still could have killed us all. And I think it, I think I was right. And you're just lucky it came out this way. (laughs) That's the way I would have ended it with her. The bridge sequence was my least favorite part of the show because it seemed very predictable to me. So an interesting insight there, because that was something that I think we talked about when we watched the episode together was that Ro immediately when all is said and done and everything turns out, well, she turns to Troy and says, you were right counselor. And, and you know, thank you for seeing us through this basically. Uh, what I love is Troy says back to her, you could have just as easily been right. And, you know, touches Rose's arm as she says that and, and walks away. Um, so I, I think they get that moment with Troy saying that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it vindicates Roe a little bit. So I, I don't necessarily agree she came off as weak in this episode. I think that little, that button where Troy says you could have easily been the right one. And in maybe two alternate universes over the enterprise exploded and everybody died because of the choices that were made. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that's really an interesting take from one of the writers though.
1: Yeah. I, I would actually have to disagree with Michael Pillar here too, in the sense that adding that extra bit of tension, I think would make Roe seem even more reckless than she needed to be. Um, mm. back to Apollo 13, of course, Uh, You and I spoke about this, but uh, if anyone doesn't know, um, if you actually, and I think you can, in certain cases, listen to the actual correspondence between the Apollo 13 crew. So anyone, everyone knows after Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, where uh, humans made it to the moon. Apollo 13, sadly, um, had a malfunction that caused them to not be able to land on the moon, and they had to use some pretty fancy footwork and a little bit of MacGyver skills to launch themselves back around the moon's gravitational pull so that they could whip back around and make it safe back to Earth. And uh, thinking about that... um, It's, it's, it's remarkable that they were able to make that, um, and Mm -hmm. not die. So when you hear the actual conversation and correspondence between the, um, between Houston and the crew, you find the conversation, they almost sound bored in cases where they're just like trying this now, doing this. Yep. Copy that on one. Mm -hmm. And the fact that in that survival situation, they have been so well trained that they know what they need to do and they know where everyone fits and where everyone sits. And so I think ultimately what Roe was doing was acknowledging the fact that she wasn't following the appropriate due process and was bringing that to light. And I think that was important that she was still vindicated, but it was O'Brien's look in the end where he he makes eye contact with Roe. And then just, he makes the very, very real choice of staring back at the display and getting back to work. This is resolved. We're moving on. And I like that a lot.
2: Yeah. And again, speaks to that professionalism of Starfleet and the, the fact that, yeah, these were extraordinary circumstances that we just went through, but we've still got to keep rerouting power and keep the lights on in 10 forward or whatever it is that, he's doing on that console at that moment. Right. So yeah, I, I love that. I and think nobody gets the last laugh. I think. That's yeah. Important. And yeah. And that's the thing. Nobody has to get one over on someone else. No one has to win, you know, for, for all of this to have gone right. Roe concedes ground and Troy concedes it right back. You know, no one, no one says like, boy, I sure hate to have to tell you that I was right. Huh? You know, like n- there's none of that.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: So, um, I think this next pairing is very much
1: played for a bit of laughs and it ties all the way to Picard season three with, uh, Riker and data, um, crawling around Jeffrey's tubes together and, uh, Riker eventually just carrying Data's head around. There's a a lot of kind of, it's not played like for like chuckle belly laughs or anything, but I just found the whole situation that they were going through to be sort of low key amusing the whole way, the whole way through. And I think this, this does a really good job of indicating how human Data actually already is. There's that scene where they've got that weird electric zippy zappy thing happening in the Jeffreys tubes where- That same blue lightning that's in every episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and Data kind of stands up at one point that he's going to put his body in there and short it and therefore potentially short himself out. Um, and he's got this kind of look and a we've talked a lot about Brent Spiner's ability to act of he doesn't care like a human would care, you can tell. But you also notice that he is very much acknowledging the fact that he is better than zero chance going to die Mm -hmm. uh, in this very moment. And it's that needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. You can see Riker's face of like, I think he's going to die. Um, That kind of feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, and just that moment there, I, I really think that did a lot of good to, in the continuity of Data's story, do a lot for his character. I think this was a really good Data episode in a lot of ways. And Riker plays an amazing kind of sidekick to, to what data's planning. Cause data really kind of runs the show. Like we'll do this and then we'll do this and then we'll do that. And Riker's just basically the, the reaction, right? He's like, Whoa, holy crap. You know, the whole time. Um, so I really appreciated that.
2: Yeah. I enjoyed their pairing as well. And out of all of these, I'd say that's a pairing that we've seen frequently, like Riker and data get paired a lot on away teams and that sort of thing. So it, it less so than the other ones. Is it, you know, Oh, this is new and novel, but What they're going through is interesting and I think is the most, uh, disaster movie part of the episode, right? Where it's like, oh, we've got to get past this obstacle now. Oh, there's a coolant leak in this, uh, crawlway. And we've got to really hurry and crawl to the next thing and close the thing in time and all that stuff. And then, yeah, the, once Data goes through that arc of electricity, not character arc, electrical (laughs) arc, (laughs) which is also a character arc, I guess. But, uh, and- says you know gives riker instructions to remove his head um mm-hmm. one little selfish part of me which is this episode was made in like the 2000s or, or now time because i want that one shot that they couldn't accomplish at the time where riker is running down the hallway with data's head under his arm and data's head is like giving him instructions yes as the disembodied head we do get the shot later of it you know plugged into the console which is of course the visual gag his body's under the console it's Mm -hmm. just so the the visual effects aren't quite there to achieve the the total what that would look like but i i i really do enjoy this pairing i think these two are good together Riker is great as the uh gee willikers what's going on guy and data as the you know if you connect me to the whatever, I can regulate flow between the, you know, yada yada and the techno babble thing. Yeah. It's it's good fun. It's, it's the disaster movie part of the disaster movie, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, our penultimate pairing, um, which I find the least inspiring. Uh, before the disaster, I found it the most fun. Um, the actual disaster... Ah, fine, fun, cool. Okay, it was Crusher and LaForge dealing with a plasma fire and then having to put it out by hanging on real tight and uh, letting everything get sucked out into space. Um, I understand this one actually is like existential to the ship. I think it actually was one of the biggest problems that the ship was facing, and I'm glad that they fixed it. You You showed me some continuity errors that I can't unsee now. <laughs> Which would have made this whole problem of sucking the plasma out and everyone getting sucked out too completely moot. But, um, I don't know. There's not really much to say other than the fact that, uh, again, you see them going through very sort of procedural training, breathing, trusting each other, helping one another, and they make it. I, I don't know what else to say about this one, to be honest.
2: Yeah, this one to me has the most problems just in, insofar as highlighting the ineptness of Starfleet emergency procedures a little bit. Like I like their actual, how they deal with it and like the, the, the breathing to prepare themselves for the, the la- lack of atmosphere and stuff. But this is a cargo bay on a galaxy class starship, the flagship of the Federation. Is there not a, an emergency locker with, pressure suits you're working next to a door that leads to the vacuum of space mm-hmm. you'd think there would always be emergency procedures to to deal with that in ways other than hanging on real tight to a ladder so you don't get sucked into space which in and of itself is a whole other thing that we've discussed yes wouldn't actually happen etc yeah. etc cetera, et cetera. but uh yeah there's a few things the big errors for me one is minor But it's, you know, Crusher puts her hand on the wall to lean. She's like, "Jordy, this wall is hot. And Jordy, with his visor that in the very first episode of TNG says can see thermally goes where? And then it explodes and there's the fire. Uh, And then the other thing is... So they have to use this panel to open the door, to lower the force field, to evacuate the the room of oxygen. Then they have to hit that same panel to close the door, make their way all the way across the cargo bay to hit a button to repressurize the room. Why would that not be on that same panel? I mean, these are all just nits that I'm picking. Mm -hmm. Um, But on that panel also in the L cars is a big section that has the words environmental support on it. And one of the first books I ever bought Star Trek wise was the Knitpicker's guide for next generation trekkers by Phil Farrand. And one of the things he says about this section is, and I love this, what could environmental support mean if it doesn't mean getting oxygen back into the room? Is that the panel you touch to make a contribution to Greenpeace? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's funny in in sort of like the anachronistic
1: set designs of ships, and we're about to get into that when, when Picard and the kids are climbing the turbo lifts, but sort of reminiscent of uh, Star Trek First Contract when Picard takes Lily to that weird yes. little observation deck that has, you have to crawl. <laughs> into, but there's a little El Cars display and a, a little open door that opens up and like it's the Lily viewing room. Apparently they built it just for her. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what to make of, of that. And you're right. So the anachronistic, um, designs of any starship will always make the plot more interesting, I suppose.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, these are the things that go through my nerd brain while I'm watching this, but at the same time, like I said, I like the interaction between Jordy and Crusher and I like that, They're, they're taking small steps to reduce risk, right? Like they're, they're moving the cargo containers across the room where the radiation is less. They're tackling their problems one at a time. They're not resigned to their fate or anything like that. It, it, it's just another example of the prof- professionalism of Starfleet officers mm-hmm. when faced with the ineptness of Starfleet designers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's good that it was boring
1: because it meant that they follow procedure very, very well. So uh, mm-hmm. kudos to them for, for getting that one through. But uh, watching Worf deliver a baby just was better television. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the final bit, and, and I like to save it for this one, because when I first watched this, I always imagined myself one of these kids. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, um, this was, it was about the age I was at when it, when it happened, when it was airing. Um, So I really identified with these little kiddos in a lot of ways. And watching Picard, um, very, uh, you know, very reminiscent to Alan Grant in, uh, in Jurassic Park, you know, gruffly kind of go about. Uh, with with the kids and then and then really open up and be that nurturing commander leader father figure that um, that he is capable of being in a lot of cases I'd like to start this with um, one thing that I really liked was the fact that Picard was able to kind of give the kids a way to see themselves reflected in the, the group that they were in. That they aren't kids anymore. They're, they're members of his little mini crew. And in that comes the responsibilities. And, and kids love to please. Kids love to um, take part and be a part and be a help. And so I think Picard is really good. And that shows his leadership style because, um, like I said, this about uh, kids, adults also like to be a part, take part, and, and adults like to be helpful too um and so in this respect i think he this shows picard's leadership style the fact that he is able to bring the best out of everyone who he commands uh, mm-hmm. and in that respect he really does find the best
2: in all three of those kids and uh, i think it's awesome agreed 100 percent. there's so much about this that i love like a you've got the juxtaposition of picard who hates kids having to usher these kids through this disaster and I don't know if it's, it's because of his lack of experience with kids or just the way you're supposed to handle this situation. He never talks down to them. He never makes them, he never reassures them for the sake of reassurance, you know, like he explains what's happening. He says, you know if we don't get out of here, this turbo lift is going to fall. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to go up. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't say everything's going to be okay. We just have to believe, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. No, he, he very calmly he has one kid go up to the top and, and inspect and and report on what he sees and trusts that, that kid's observational skills when he says, you know, this thing's half out of the groove and, Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And Picard says, okay, well, and he tells the eldest kid, if we stay here, this is going to happen. We need to get out of here. We need to save everybody kind of thing. And I love that. I think that's great. I, I, if this were a real world situation, those kids are going to remember that for the rest of their lives and Mm -hmm. take that lesson to heart. And kids watching this television show. I remember as a kid watching this television show thinking that like, boy, if I were in some situation like that, I sure hope I have a Captain Picard with me because that was perfect, you know?
1: And, and, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into all of them specifically, but I've been in sort of many situations where there have been many representations of many disasters that weren't hardly as emergent or existential. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm, I thought back to myself, and, and to be honest, um, I work with kids, and in those moments, being very Picard-like in that, I think, is very helpful. Mm-hmm. It's good, and at the very least, um, if things weren't to have gone the way Um, that, that you would expect in a a nineties television show. And let's say the ship does blow up or something. Um, at the very least, Picard had those kids working. He had them doing something, um, all the way to the very, very end. They were, you know, trying their best. And, uh, you know, obviously at the end that, that very sort of after school, especially when, um, Picard shouts number one in both, both Riker <laughs> and, uh, the young lady, um, whose name suddenly escapes me. Uh, Marissa Flores. Yeah. Yes, Marissa Flores, when they both sort of respond, I thought that was quite, uh, quite amusing. And, and I mean, predictable nineties television, but, um, I don't know, for me, it really lands, um, I like the fact that the kids are the only ones who seem hopeless too. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They're children. Um, all of the adults in this don't really have a, oh God, we're all going to die kind of feeling um, to them. And I think that's, you know, that's partly because they're, their crew um, and they know what they're doing. But like, I don't really feel like anyone necessarily loses hope. I mean, even based on what uh, Michael Pillar said about what Rose character was supposed to be, I don't feel like she really lands in a sort of hopeless sense. Um, mm. She is, being the devil's advocate in a lot of ways she is um being a lot more straight up about what might need to happen and
2: i think that's actually necessary and useful in a lot of Maybe, cases uh, militant pragmatism would be kind of how i would describe that like she's like the reality of the situation and like troy says she could have absolutely been right the 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 star drive section is going to explode. We need to save as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. The mathematics of it say separate the saucer section, get as far away as possible. And I don't think any board of inquiry afterwards would fault anybody having made that decision.
1: No, she, isn't. she isn't relishing in that decision. She's cutting her losses. She's understanding that in this moment, things are going to happen real fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we better make sure we're as far away from it as possible when it does, you know? Yeah. Um, And, you know, getting into maybe those ethics and morals and stuff like that. I think the way Picard deals with these young people, he's also ethical with them as well, right? Um, He never puts them in a position of doing something that they wouldn't necessarily feel completely like he doesn't have some kind of knowledge or assistance, but at the same time, with his broken ankle, with his his sort of vulnerable state that he's in, it does put him into to a position where he must trust these children. And I've seen kids rise to the occasion in a lot of cases, and they are deserving of trust in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they don't know the story on every single thing, and may you know maybe they're a little more prone to error and mistake given their age and brain development. But um, when tasked to strike you know, to strike some kind of equilibrium, um, these young people know where they're supposed to be, know what they're supposed to be doing and help each other. And, and I think that's really, really important. I love it when they were, you know, kind of whinging as they were climbing the mountain that was the turbo lift. And you and I have talked about how, like, why does it have gravity? Um, you know, <laughs> well, again, this is played for, for television, but, uh, when they start singing, and this is a song that clearly comes from Jean-Luc's, Childhood again, which is a lovely sort of thing to share um, that he has with these with these tiny people, and uh, yeah, I think that's ultimately what makes this episode so good is they do what is sometimes the impossible, and that is make a television show centered around kids interesting, uh, mm-hmm. and they did a very good job of it.
2: Yeah, no matter how many times the youngest kid spikes the camera as he's talking, yeah, I noticed like three or four times he looks right at the camera. Like, yeah, mm, yeah, boy. But, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoy this, this whole part and, you know, it might be as I grow older, the part of the show that ages the least well is, I mean, they're kid actors, Mm -hmm. right? You you can't get a hundred percent, but it felt very real to me still. Like these kids did a really great job and there's, there's even a couple of moments where, uh, the oldest of the kids, the girl, her acting kind of blows me away that moment you mentioned when the turbo lift falls, the like shaky, like look of panic on her mm-hmm. face as she grabs the ladder and pulls herself tight to the, the wall. Yeah. That felt real. Like I felt like she was accessing some time in her life when she was terrified. Yeah. Uh, because that was on her face yeah. and- she must Man. have
1: fallen off a ladder or a shed or something,
2: you know, to yeah.
1: to have that kind of reaction. <laughs> I know that reaction. I've fallen off of stuff like that, right? Totally. Definitely. <laughs> I think ultimately the values that, that kind of sit through all of this and, and, and sort of underscore it is, you know, they're not immediately like those gosh darn Romulans or something like the, they scientifically determine the cause. First off mm. um, there's heavy communication, knowledge sharing um, and positive reassurance, encouraging language and behavior, people rising to the occasion, um, gender and gendered roles are, are more or less, and even ageist roles in some cases are, are pretty much meaningless. Um, everyone has a, a tough and a nurturing moment. I find any kind of main character does. And in the sense, I think, the biggest folly would be to, to you know, to lose hope in this respect. And I think hope is best when it's shared. Humanity is found in our will to survive in a lot of cases. And, you know, kind of taking things back to, you know, Herculaneum, um, there's an interesting point where um, there are individuals who we know who were there who just simply aren't accounted for. And there's a painting, a fresco that was being painted when Vesuvius went off. And you can see that the painting wasn't completely done. And there was a there was a painter, master, and an apprentice there. The pre- the apprentice had just finished plastering the wall, and then the, the painter he's he, he there's clear evidence that he spilled his um his like the the varnish that goes over the, the over it because it's kind of splattered mm. funny so the coolest part is there's no account of their grave anywhere or their death in the sense that I think they got out. I think they got away. Um, they aren't among the people mm. accounted for in, and I mean, we can't fully know for sure, but it kind of this idea that like, I'm now sharing this with everyone in this podcast that, uh, you know, people survived that and, and we all have that chance. And I think we have to, we have to know that in those extremely, uh, what could sometimes feel like hopeless situations, if we share our hope, we might make it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's always something to be thinking about is, is it's not over until it's over. And, and it's important to, to keep that in mind.
2: Yeah, I I can't add a ton to to what you've said there because you summed it up really really well. Keeping that positivity and, you know, plug for positively trek, you know, uh, that hope. Um whether that's hope for survival in an emergency situation like this, hope for the future, which is what Star Trek itself embodies, this idea that we're going to make it, you know. We 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 have to work to make it. We're not just going to make it through sheer wishful thinking everyone in this episode takes positive steps that lead to that outcome, but it's because they don't give up hope that they're able to take those steps and, and ensure that outcome. Uh, and I, I think that's a really great message and it might not be a message that my young self watching this implicitly got, from the ex or explicitly got from the episode, but it's definitely implicit in everything that happens, right? Yeah. So I-, I think this continues the Star Trek tradition of just really great messaging. And I feel like if this were any other early 90s drama show and this was like a skyscraper in an earthquake or something like that, you would have a similar story. But there would be a lot more people yelling at each other and saying "move your ass" and you yeah. know blah 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 and all that stuff. And you don't get that here. You get people cooperating and working together. And I, I just can't think of anything more Star Trek than that.
1: Right. And so you know, here we are. Um, thankfully, they're 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 going out. But uh, over the last couple of weeks, you and I Dan have had to uh, deal with some pretty choking um, wildfire smoke and. You know, I, I was thinking about this episode in relation to the disaster that we're, we're experiencing, you know, um, the nearby reserve, um, that you and I live near, um, uh, that we share, um, Treaty 8 territory with, um, Sturgeon Lake, they've lost, uh, almost 50 houses and, um, the people of that, uh, of that reserve have been scattered all the way from, uh, you know, nearby to, to far-flung parts of the province to, to accommodate them while they're, while they're dealing with this. And, the way I sort of see how these fires have happened, you know, um, not only were these problems sort of sown in the, the cuts that, sadly, both governments, previous governments, have uh, undergone uh, in, our, in our wildfire fighting, but I think all failures in managing what's happened in our province recently has come from that lack of communication and lack of in- infrastructure. And that's the thing where those two lacks are what the Enterprise crew had in spades. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aside from the death on the bridge, I think there was one person who was killed. I think it was the duty officer. She was just too close to an exploding console, I think. But outside of that, what comes from having a heavy communication and sort of a chain of command infrastructure or sort of an understanding of who's in charge of what and where expertise expertise comes from, if you don't have that, then then you don't really have a culture of trust. And I think that's what Alberta's dealing with right now. We have an election tomorrow uh, as we're recording this. and um. It'll be interesting to see what happens in our in our society moving forward. And I think building that culture of trust, being communicative, being connected with each other, realizing that though, you know, immediately speaking, we may feel disconnected. It was the actions that they did on the bridge that got Data and Riker to do the actions that they did um, down in engineering, right? It's this, though we feel disconnected, we're really not Um you know, Mm O'Brien was rest assured knowing that someone was going to deliver, you know, I guess he didn't know Keiko was giving birth, but you know, in that respect, um, someone was there, right? Um, people didn't even know there was a plasma fire. Nobody would have known had LaForge and Crusher not been in that turbo lift or not been in that, that warehouse, right?
0: Um,
1: all of these things do come together to show that though disconnected, we're all still very connected to each other. So I think that that's something that, um, you and I living in the province we do should consider more often, maybe we do, but, maybe uh, the the royal we in that case, and all of us, right? Keeping that culture of trust, being communicative, and sharing our hopes um, is the way we manage our fandom, I think, in a lot of cases, the Star Trek folk. Uh, but then also, I think it's it's something that, that resonates a little bit bigger. This TV show, though made in the 90s for a number of reasons by the writers, ultimately has some very deep, um, deep philosophical meaning to me, and I'll always appreciate this episode.
2: Yeah, and I think as you say, this, this resonates quite a bit given what's happening and, and what will continue to happen in various forms throughout all of history. Like we're going to be faced with hardships and obstacles to overcome whatever form they take. And, and in this case, this summer right now, it's not even summer yet. And uh, we're right in the middle of fire season, as you say, facing the, these hardships and, yeah. Militant hope, I guess, maybe, maybe I'm throwing around the word militant too much. Maybe, I, I don't know, but you know, hope, but with action behind it. Yes, And that action being, as you say, strong ties of communication and community and, and solidarity together as, as humanity. Um, it's the only way we're going to get out of this, whatever the, this is exactly. we're talking about at the time. So I, I, I think that's uh that's very important. I, I like in this episode, as you mentioned, there's no um there's no other, there's no external bad guy that they have to protect against. It's they very quickly determine that it's nature what we're going through in the province right now. Sort of nature, but maybe carelessness, I guess, might be the and, and then of course mismanagement as well, compounding that. Mm-hmm. Lots to think about with regards to that this is what we're going through, where we live, people are going through a million other things uh where you live, whether that is through the actions of an external other uh who is um doing bad things, cough Florida cough uh, <laughs> you know there are very various disasters man made and otherwise that are are happening to communities all around the world uh and i I think there's lessons to be taken from Star Trek. Uh, very broad lessons, as you mentioned, with regards to militant hope. I guess, yeah. yeah. So, as
1: a as a final piece here, and and you and I have had the opportunity, um, having gone to STLV and ridden elevators with famous people from time to time. <laughs> um, what
2: character or characters from any era of Star Trek would you want to get stuck in a turbo lift with? Depends on the situation. Like if it's a life and death. Uh, situation like this, I, yeah, Picard data, or maybe the EMH, I think would Mm. be probably a good idea. Uh, I can tell you just from personal experience, uh, and no shade to the actor, uh, he's awesome But I was in an elevator at STLV and Marco Limo came in Mm. and, uh, yeah, I'd love to get stuck in an elevator with Marco Limo. Gul on the other hand, uh, Mm. not so much. (laughs) Actually, um, thinking about it just for
1: like, to be able to like, yeah, you're right. Depending on the situation, if you're just waiting for people to come and get you, um, that's going to be a lot different. like, I, I think, um. I think it'd be fun to just kind of get into a banter fest with, like, Neelix or something. I think he would be a good lark just to, like, have someone to talk at or talk at you while you're waiting for someone to rescue you.
2: Ooh. Or Jedzia Dax. For yeah.
1: That. Oh. Be, that'd be great. The stories she could tell. Yeah, totally. absolutely. Um But, like, yeah, getting getting out and actually like surviving uh give me ben cisco give me data yeah. <laughs> um give me michael burnham right oh yeah <laughs> yeah she'll even ta- tell herself a little poem while she's scurrying through the Jeffries tubes or like she- totally. she- she'll recite Alice in wonderland <laughs> or something like yeah i would say definitely someone like that um mirror Georgiou, i think would also be good though she might leave you <laughs> leave you yeah. behind
2: that that militant pragmatism might come into play there, yeah, yeah,
1: that's why actually, like I would be a little bit depending on the time frame, uh seven of nine would not be someone I'd wanna be stuck
2: in a turbo mm. lift with, um, yeah, Picard era, seven of nine absolutely, uh voyager era, yeah, not so much, maybe not. <laughs>
1: Well, that about wraps up this, uh, this episode. Um, Dan, I really love just getting together to watch Star Trek with you and, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to tell anyone what to do, but, uh, if you don't often get a chance to watch Star Trek with other Star Trek fans, um, try your best. Uh, it's so much fun to watch Star Trek with, with other diehard fans such as yourself, sir. So let's make a, let's make a, a habit of that, um, in the future, at least something of a routine. For and sure. um, outside of that, you can reach us on the Positively Trek Facebook group, where you will see me post. Now, um, I have a better relationship with Facebook, and and we'll drop the odd little bit of banter here and there. And I love seeing everybody's engagement. And uh, outside of that, we've uh, we were happy to be able to have this conversation today. And if there's more to say about disaster, we'd love to hear it on the Facebook group. Mm-hmm. So until then, uh, stay positive.
2: wait for the motorbike to finish going by my house
1: <laughs> yeah i can hear it from here
2: i know it's bad Ugh.
1: if i went out my door i could probably hear it from where i am too <laughs> probably <laughs>